Good morning, everyone. Thank you for braving the elements, getting on your various arcs and coming through the flood down the freeway to receive the wisdom of the Lord here in the book of Proverbs. We're going to be looking back at chapter 5. We're just a little ways into this seventh address to a son. And again, in terms of the macro development of the text and the themes of the text, we're seeing emerge this contrast between the two wisdom, or between the two women, one being wisdom and the other being foolishness, one being righteous and the other being wicked. And just as we've seen all the way through in many and various ways, but maybe most clearly that there are only two paths, there's a fork in the road and you must go down one or the other, the path of light or the path of darkness, the path of wisdom or the path of foolishness. Uh, So also now there are two women, and the father would have his son marry the right one and not be seduced by the other. We'll dig back into chapter 5 right after our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. To get ourselves recontextualized, let's begin at verse 1 of chapter 5. Obviously, we went into detail here in the first six or so verses last week. We won't do that today. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion. Or again, we talked about how that word can mean purpose. And your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil but in the end she is bitter as wormwood sharp as a two-edged sword even going through it right now i'm noticing just another poetic element that i don't think i pointed out last week i mean of of this kind of discovery there really is no end but if you look the the contrast there the poetic contrast is from one set of lips to the other the lips in two are the lips of the sun and your lips may guard or keep knowledge, and then immediately transitioning to the lips of a forbidden woman, which is opposed to guarding knowledge, drip with honey, obviously that's sweetness, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is as uh, is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. So bitter and deadly, though at first she seems sweet and smooth. Okay, she leads down a path, so to follow her is to go with her, and that's the sense of verse 5. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And maybe that was the most heavily emphasized verse last week, is the ignorance and blindness of evil, the myopia of evil. All right, in verse 7, that word and in English indicates what lies underneath Hebrew grammar such that this is not a start of a new section but a continuation of the one that followed. So even though he says, and now, O sons, this is really considered part and parcel of this seventh address to a son. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest your honor to others 
and your ears to the merciless, lest you give your honor to others, excuse me, and your ears to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. We still continue on with the same sentence. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. Okay, so keep far away from her. Do not go near to the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others. Probably the sense of reputation here, that they will see what you are doing, even if you don't actually go in. You've gone near, you've gone to her house, and it's going to ruin your reputation or destroy your honor. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. And there are some commentators who suggest here the idea of blackmail or extortion. Might be getting a little more specific than Solomon's intent, but could certainly be seen as a subset. And then lest strangers take fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. Now this is would be um, here in essence the house of an unbeliever or the house of unbelief. That would be the sense. So to depart after this woman is to depart into a foreign and alien house to serve alien gods and alien purposes, to have your honor destroyed amongst the people of God, to give your years over to the wicked and merciless who are outside of God's family, Etc. So those are the warnings, and hopefully that's painting a kind of picture for you. Um, these verses, again, there's some debate, as I mentioned last week, as to whether we should see this woman as a Gentile idolatress outside, or whether we should see her as a Jewish apostate, and you can frankly see both. But in this section, it seems to be one who's outside, probably a Gentile idolatress. Okay, and then the whole point would be that at the end of your life, you look back on it and groan. No one wants that. When your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. And that idea is an echoing of what came before in chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Quoted in Hebrews for the Christian discipline that we experience and to zoom all the way out, the difficulties we experience as Christians result in a blessed end as opposed to the way of wickedness, which are sweet and smooth up front but lead to a cursed end. So you can see that theme being presented here poetically in that at the end, your flesh and body are consumed and you lament and say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Okay, so let's pause there, see if you have any reflections, see if it's all fairly clear or if you have anything that you'd like to mention by way of practical application. But he's okay? Semi-comatose from the heater? (laughs) All right, fair enough. Makes my job easier. So, verse 15, we continue, even though your English Bible probably shows like a paragraph break. The section continues, but with a pivot. 
drink water from your own cistern. Now, a cistern obviously being a well and water and life, but there are some commentators who see this as very practical advice, as in, hey, if you're married, uh, drink from your own cistern, that is, receive love from your own wife and don't go chasing after the forbidden woman. And so they turn this into a very concrete teaching on marital fidelity. And I'm not opposed to that concrete teaching on marital fidelity. I just don't think that that's precisely what's in view. I think it's that's the analogy and it's more than that. Biblically, the theme of adultery corresponds with the theme of idolatry. So that Yahweh, who is betrothed to his people will com- as to a bride, will complain against them that they are an adulterous and idolatrous people. That is to say, they pursue another husband precisely in that they pursue, to be, they pursue an attempt to be wed to these other gods. Does that make sense? So I think that that's what's going on here is uh, we've got this concrete kind of an analogy working, but there's a deeper meaning involved. So here then the sense would be drink water from your own cistern, that is from your own family's well. And that would be then the heritage and inheritance, the land, property, and family of this father who is wise unto salvation, would have his son be wise unto salvation, would have him be wed to this woman of wisdom, and would have them all reside at their own cistern, the family cistern, and not go drink after off of foreign cisterns. So drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. And this dovetails beautifully, of course, with Christ, who, remember at the, with the woman at the well, says that if she would have asked, he would give her water of which she would drink and never thirst again. So if you're looking for a very concrete application to what precisely this cistern or well is, we would say it's Yahweh and then Yahweh in the flesh, (coughs) namely our Lord Jesus. So not to depart from our Lord Jesus from whom we receive the waters of life. Yes, I see a hand up front. Do we have a microphone today or not so much? All right. Take your time, please. Uh, Just right up here in the front row. Seems like it's very clear uh, what the Word says. Even though if we do a very deep self-examination, it's really hard to get to that understanding, that clear understanding about our idolatry and you know, how we are, we have, I don't know, we worship something else besides God. So how can we get that like, understanding or, or, I don't know, to... Maybe I can help articulate with uh, this kind of dis- distinction. So we can have a twofold distinction if we would s- use something like, um, and these aren't going to be probably technical names for the categories, but if we l- use something like um, subtle versus manifest. Okay? So what would we say is subtle idolatry? Subtle idolatry is the kind we learn of, for example, in uh, Luther's treatment in the Ten Commandments on the, um, in, the book, in the Book of Concord, of course, but in the Large Catechism, where the first commandment he says, a god is whatever you place your trust in. So you can think of all the false gods that we subtly place our trust in all the time. Money, a sense of security, a sense of family, um, government, safety, whatever the case may be. And using the law in these ways, we can analyze ourselves deeply and see that the human heart is by nature idolatrous. 
A similar preaching and use of this subtle kind of, uh, well, the law that reveals these subtle and pernicious sins um, is Jesus' treatment of the law in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, etc. And then he goes into, you know, you've already broken the commandment if you have hatred in your heart. You've already broken the commandment if you have lust in your eye. Okay. So these are, and this is a very, obviously, a very valid way of preaching, using, and understanding the law. And it's biblically essential. It precludes us from ever saving ourselves. It's this aspect of the law where you go, (laughs) there's no amount of reform that's going to get me good enough to go into heaven. Jesus is going to have to cleanse me with his blood, period, the end. By the way, this too is, is kind of the, oh, there's so much delight in the, the way we order them, the two final commandments about coveting, because there's so much there. You think it ends kind of like with a whimper, but in fact it ends with just one of the most wild bangs imaginable. And and one of those is the idea of coveting. Um, Paul takes up in Romans and says, if the commandment had not said, thou shalt not covet, I would not have even known that coveting was a sin. And it's to say, it's this dissatisfaction within us from our sinful nature is so pernicious, it's just permanently there. And it's so subtle, it's, it's, you cannot even reform yourself. You can't say, well, that's it. I'm going to stop coveting. Starting on January 1, no more coveting. New Year's resolution, 2023. Yeah, that's not going to work. And that's the real punch of the finality of the law. And so... The law has this meaning and this use and this purpose, and here we would firmly ground it in what we call the second use of the law, the law as a mirror, which I always tell the confirmation kids it's like this. You wake up in the morning and you you go down to the breakfast table and you think you look just fine. You think you look good. And then you go to the mirror and your hair's going like this, and you got toothpaste or drool, who knows, down your lip, and your shirt's all frumpled, and you got maple syrup down it, and the mirror reveals to you your true state. And that's much how the world is. If you, if you go out into the world and talk to people abroad, they all think they're basically good people, and God's basically a good guy, and we're all going to heaven, and um, we don't, just don't even have to think about it, and the only, pe- the only person who's in hell is you know, probably uh, Hitler and then whoever, the, whoever leads the political party I don't like, and that's it. Um, the rest of us, it's just God's a good old boy and we're all good and we get in. And so the law comes in and says, okay, no. And it starts diagnosing the heart in these subtle ways, all the ways in which we are contrary to what goodness is. And then the real punch of the law is that it's inescapable. There's no amount. It's why, it, why Paul says it shuts every mouth. Because even if you've like, okay, I'm going to stop actually physically murdering people. I'm going to stop have, you know, having adulterous affairs all the time. I'm going to stop embezzling a bunch of money. Okay? Even, if you, even if you actually do these things externally, and you should, what has not changed is the, is the desire within you to do these things, and the fact that you probably would do them if you could get away with it, if you would not get caught. And so there's the deeper diagnosis of the law showing us that out of the law flows all manner of evil, as Christ himself says. So what has to happen? The blood of Christ has to simply cover that heart. Okay, so there's the subtle. But now when we take this subtle way, and and probably even, I don't know, it just depends what we're thinking about. If we're thinking about justification, I think this is the dominant way we should think about the law, and I think that it is the dominant way that um, we all think about the law, particularly uh, post-Reformation. But there is another way that we have to think about the law, otherwise we're not going to understand the Old Testament. And that is that these manifest crass sort of things. So when God gives the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai and says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. He's not talking about like, okay, so the second you rely on money, I'm gonna, you've broken the covenant and I'm going to cast you off to the Assyrians or the Babylonians. That's not what he's talking about. Here he's not talking about subtle, but rather manifest or crass breaches of the commandments. 
So what is a violation there? Not that someone might love money too much or trust in their own health too much or something like this, but very plainly, don't set up an Asherah pole and worship it. Don't sacrifice your firstborn to Moloch. Don't bring into my temple idols. Don't give my glory to things that your hands have made, etc. So the Lord is talking about very crass, very plain and self-evident examples of idolatry. And in fact, his people engage in this, as we all know the sad story of, of Israel. And, um, and of course, tying back into our text, largely because they intermarry with pagans who lead them into idolatry. The seductress is very concrete in that sense. And then what, I mean, Yahweh is incredibly patient and incredibly merciful. And that's, it's really a wild part of that era of the minor prophets. Because he's incredibly gracious because he literally begs his people to knock this off for centuries. When he finally and completely loses patience with them after giving them far more chances than we would ever give them, punishment comes and comes swiftly. The Assyrians in 722 to the north, and then the Babylonians in 587, 586 in the south. But then what's remarkable is you would expect God to let that sit. Like God is ticked, and he's patient, and he's going to let that sit. But the remarkable thing, I mean, just astonishing thing about God, and the prophets even tell of it before it even happens, is that he barely lets that sit for a generation before he starts bringing his people back into the promised land to rebuild the temple, rebuild Jerusalem. So what do you see? You see that God is exactly as the scriptures say, long-suffering, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And in fact, as soon as he strikes, before he even strikes, he's comforting his people. I'll be preaching at least in part this morning on Isaiah. And that's sort of the, that's the fascinating thing about Isaiah is he's prophesying. You remember this uh, famous, we've got a hymn, Comfort, comfort ye my people. Speak ye peace, thus saith our God. So Isaiah has prophesied, um, what would it be? Some 80 years-ish into the future of the destruction of Judah. And simultaneously, he is prophesying how God will, no sooner than he destroys them, comfort them and say, your warfare is over, your iniquity is pardoned, I have forgiven you. It's, just glor- it's a glorious historic example, concrete, of God's patience, being slow to anger, and then his steadfast love removing the penalty almost immediately, and all of this being stated ahead of time. Okay, so all that to say, getting back to your original question, that when we look at the Old Testament, it's not as if, oh, the people broke the law, broke the Ten Commandments in one place, therefore God cast them out. Um, Somebody had a naughty thought, God casts out the whole nation, or they're separated from the covenant. No, God knew these kinds of things were going to take place. That's why he gave, in the Mosaic Covenant itself, the sacrificial system and the sacrifices by which he would declare the people atoned. Does that make sense? So he already knows there's going to be these kinds of sins. That's not the breach of the covenant. The breach of the covenant comes with this crass, manifest idolatry that he cannot tolerate to have another god. Okay, Okay, so hopefully that makes sense. Sorry, that was really long-winded, but... I get all excited about this period of history because there's so many, it's really kind of a type of our own period in history um, where we as the church are in exile all across the world. We find ourselves in these pagan and alien lands trying to cope and trying to navigate, not fitting in, not (laughs) not doing very well. And the beautiful twofold comfort that God gives us is that, first of all, he's with us and hasn't abandoned us. And he's with us in a merciful way to blot out our iniquities, and he's not counting our sins against us. And the second great comfort is that just as he leads his people 
out of exile and out of Babylon. So he will lead us out of this fallen world to our heavenly home with him, most precisely in the new heavens and the new earth. So the scriptures actually have these three exoduses as the major salvific events of this entire epoch or era or age. First, the exit is the exodus or exit of his people out of Egypt, followed by the exodus or exit of his people out of Babylon, followed by our exodus out of this world into the new heavens and the new earth. So these three exoduses build to a climax of God's mercy and grace. And really, from that angle, tell you the whole story or the whole narrative sweep of this age. Okay, um, any, anything else we want to chat about, or are we okay? All right, let's jump back in then. So, at verse 15, drink water from your own cistern. Stay in the family, have your life here with the family, very concretely. Christ is that cistern. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad... Streams of water in the streets? Of course not. Nobody's going to do that. Nobody's going to take their water, which is the life source of their family, and let it just be scattered abroad and stream through the streets. They're not going to do that because it's precious. Well, that's what you do if you follow this wicked woman. You're wasting your inheritance and heritage and that which gives you life. So he continues, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers within you. And again, here you can see how this son is in in the author's mind, in Solomon's mind, not only his, his son, but all of Israel. So let them be for yourself alone, and not for strangers within you. That is, don't intermingle with the pagans and mix your life with theirs and your blessing with their curses. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Now again, all this can be very concrete marital sort of advice to get rid of idolatry, but again, I think that that's just, or adultery, but again, I think that that's just the analogy. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. That is to say, wisdom has been given to you, betrothed to you, and then she has become your wife from your youth. Now we get some poetics, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. And sure, could this be talking about your, your earthly wife? Yeah, no problem. But again, I think that that's the analogy for um, the romance of wisdom, if you'll allow a loosely fitting description. The romance of wisdom. To find delight in her and to be intoxicated by her love. Okay, why should you be intoxicated, my son? Notice that here we're back to the singular. With a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. That is to say that Everything has purpose and meaning precisely because it is visible to the Lord. All right, verse 22. The iniquities or sins of the wicked ensnare him and trap him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. 
So again, one who follows this path, one who follows after this forbidden woman, um, his iniquities ensnare him. Of course, we've already mentioned this theme that sin presents itself as freedom and then lo and behold ensnares you. And then to be held in the cords of one's sin. This, of course, is very much what what Jesus says. um, Whoever sins or commits sin is a slave to sin. He goes on to say, but the truth will set you free. So that truth which appears confining is freedom, and the lie which appears to be freedom is in fact bondage. Okay, that brings us to a conclusion then to this seventh address of ten to a son. It's a lengthy one, all of chapter five. And we see some repeating themes, but again, in this chapter, um, above all that if preceded it, we see the development of this theme between the two women now, um, the woman who is uh, chaste and wise over and against the woman who is uh, wicked and foolish. All right, let me pause there, see if you have any reflections, comments, questions. Clear enough? All right. I mean, I think so. Okay, so on to the eighth address to a son of ten. And this will take us through uh, verse 19. My son, if you have put up a security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. It sounds very much like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? Right? So... um, in fact, why don't we just jump to Matthew 5 real quick? I want, to, I want you to just see the parallel here so you can see what Jesus is commenting on there. So we're going to Matthew 5. And if you'll notice, there there have been quite a few references to the Sermon on the Mount, and that's good. It's fitting, because the Sermon on the Mount really should be read and understood, I think, more than any other genre within the wisdom genre. The Lord is doing something that is best understood probably within that category, as opposed to any other Categories we might anachronistically place upon it. But if you look at chapter 5, look especially at, well, let's just start at 21 to get the context, but I really want to get to 25. So let's look at 21, where Jesus says, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then Come and offer your gift. Now to the point that's particularly germane. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. All right, look at that again in parallel with uh, this part of Proverbs. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. 
and now it gets a little more poetic, but it's the same sentiment. So how would we translate that sentiment? That a father says to his son, when you sin against your neighbor, go make it right. And isn't that basically what our Lord is saying in the Sermon on the Mount? When you sin against your neighbor, go and make it right. How is that contrary to the natural man that is within us? You sin against your neighbor and you know you've sinned and you know you're getting called out. How does the natural man perceive that? Well, first he's embarrassed. And then he seeks to cover that embarrassment, usually by doubling down and by justifying. Well, I only did X because so-and-so did Y, and that's the only reason I'm in this mess. And the human nature can work and froth itself up to where, even though it's the one who did the sinning, now it perceives itself as being unjustly victimized and returns that with anger and wrath and grudge keeping and vindictiveness and revenge and all the other stuff that we all know by nature too well. So what does wisdom say? Don't go down that path. So if if you will, we're playing with the themes here in Proverbs of adultery and murder in Jesus Sermon on the Mount it's murder and then adultery okay but you can see the interplay between the two and this would just be I think um, obviously it's magisterial it's wonderful it's ponderous but it is also very concrete and that's when lo and behold you do in fact sin against someone here's how you ought to handle it rather than let the grudge and the resentment and the anger be built. Okay, poetically, it continues in verse 4, Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Not to get overly dramatic, but who in this case would be the hunter and the fowler? It would frankly be Satan, the one who is going to ensnare you and capture you in this circumstance from which you will not be able to extricate yourself. And it will escalate and escalate and escalate more. So tale as old as time, whether it's the Hatfield and the McCoys or whoever it might be. The other person in your HOA. (laughs) Uh, Here, instead of holding a grudge and being angry, go and make it right. That's the way of wisdom. Okay, we do have an interesting transition here. And it is up for some debate. I just interpreted verses 4 and 5 as tying in predominantly with the preceding section. One can also see them tied in with what follows next. And in any case, there does seem to be somewhat of a pivot here to action. So, one of the verses that was often quoted to me as a young man, go to the Anto sluggard. <laughs> And we can certainly do this in California, can't we? Sometimes we don't have to go to the ant. They come to us in the hundreds and thousands. Thanks, nature. Consider her ways and be wise. How, what, is an, what is an ant doing? Do you find an ant reclining on the sofa? No, you find the ant constantly busy and active and usually lifting an amazing amount for its size and weight. Industrious, always pursuing, always laboring for itself and for others. Um, So, oriented toward busyness and productivity would be maybe the better way to put it. All right, continuing in verse 7, without having any chief officer or ruler, 
She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Okay. So if you look at the study note, um, it connects this with uh, what is preceded. The ant does not have to be ordered or motivated by authority, as a parent must often motivate a lazy child. The ant is a picture of motivation from within, a picture of wisdom. So you have this kind of anthropomorphism of the woman, the she here, preparing her bread in in the summer and gathering her food in the harvest with the industry of an ant. In turning it to the feminine, it returns to this theme of wisdom. That is, wisdom herself is always producing and is in this sense autonomous, autonomous, a law unto itself. So you don't need external compelling. That's the way of wisdom. Now, I don't know. If you want to connect these ideas, there are various theories on how to do that. One is that the idle mind is the devil's playground. And have you noticed that it's only people who aren't busy in the workplace who, are, who have time to stir up drama? And that may be the connection between the early part of this address and the latter part is um, there, you know, getting yourself entangled in drama. What wisdom says, if you're at fault, make it right, get through it, so that you can get on with your life as the ant gets on with her business. If you're going to connect these thoughts, that might be how I propose to do it. There are other ways proposed, and I'm not fully made up in my own mind. It's kind of part of the joy of Proverbs is to think on these things and think of various thematic connections and how and why the Holy Spirit through Solomon has chosen to weave them together. And they may in fact not be woven together. They may in fact be two distinct and separate ideas. And that's fine too. Okay, so we've, we kind of drift from this analogy to that ant who is autonomous and productive to this woman who is autonomous and productive preparing her bread in the summer, her food in the harvest. And then we have this admonition from the father to the son echoing in just about every son's ears who's probably ever lived. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? Verse 9. When will you arise from your sleep? And again, as we're using the sort of bodily reality, we can't lose sight that this is also metaphorical for a spiritual reality. Just as one can be lazy physically, one can be lazy spiritually. One can sleep too much physically. One can sleep too much spiritually. So I'll draw that theme out as well. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest... And poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want, that is need, like an armed man. Okay, so again, very concrete, practical advice that, hey, even if you've got everything you need right now, you're going to sleep, slumber, fold the hands to rest, and before you know it, poverty is upon you, and want or need like an armed man. Poverty like a robber, want or need like an armed man. We have many admonitions in the New Testament spiritually to stay awake and to, once we are awake, to pay attention and to take care how we hear. And I think all of those sentiments are very much parallel 
to this section where we're being warned that even what we have will be taken from us. And this is reminiscent of Jesus' words as he introduces the parables in both Mark and Matthew. Um, Let me take you very quickly to Mark 4. I just want to show you this idea. Again, with the in, not with the intent of like drawing too precise of a connection, but rather with the intent of showing you how much of what Jesus says is based in the wisdom tradition of the scriptures and the wisdom genre of the scriptures. Okay, so Mark four. I want you to. I want to connect this idea in Proverbs six with Mark four, having to do with spiritual effort and productivity or the lack thereof. If you look at Mark 4, we, we'll do the whole section as we always do, but the main point I want you to get to see in parallel here is at verse 24 of Mark 4. Starting at verse 21... Jesus said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Here's what I really want you to see. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. So you see the admonition here to pay attention. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back. That is to say, put forward effort and God will reward that effort and more. That's the latter part of verse 24. And still more will be added to you. Gratia, by pure grace. Now look at 25. For to the one who has, more will be given. That's laboring in the word. What you have with the word as you continue to labor in the word, what you, to the one who has, more will be given by God's grace, and then contrast that from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The one who has little and doesn't get it and doesn't care, even that will be stripped away from him. So the point then of Jesus' teaching here is the measure you use will be measured back to you, and even more, therefore, pay attention to what you hear. And that's very, very much echoing the sentiment of the Father to his sons um, throughout, but I think particularly here where you have a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, not paying attention to wisdom and thus poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So we should be warned not only against physical laziness, that's not wise, but against a kind of spiritual laziness, which is even more so not wise because it carries greater consequence. Okay, makes sense? Any other, uh, any other connections or any other thoughts or questions you have? We're okay? A docile group. What's the temperature at? Let's keep it at the... No, I'm just joking. <laughs> keep it at this way permanently. Okay, well, we've got two minutes left. Let me just introduce the next section. Um, yeah, I mean, the continuation, but there is sort of a semantic break here. Let me just introduce this. I'll read it through, and we'll cover it uh, in depth next week. A worthless person, a wicked man, we're at verse 12, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. Okay, 
I think that what this is exploiting, just very briefly since we're out of time, is this, that the wicked think that they can get away with everything, that everything's fair game, they can get away with everything, and they do so by equivocation, by not saying exactly what they mean, but with all kinds of innuendo and subtlety and, in this case, physical cueing, winking with the eye, signaling with the feet, pointing with the finger, etc., they show that they're not acting in integrity. They're not speaking with integrity, but rather with crooked speech. And this is the way of the world. If I can deceive you, if I can get away with it, hey, there's none to judge. But this is all a warning to us because calamity will come upon such a person suddenly. He will be broken beyond healing. Why? Because, yet again, revisiting this theme, although it's only implied here, is that a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. So you might deceive everybody else and bilk them out of whatever you want, and in the end you'll gain what? Yeah, judgment from the Lord. That's what you'll gain. So this has the appearance of wisdom, that if I can become crafty and subtle and deceptive enough, I can manipulate people into getting whatever I want. That seems like an art and a kind of wisdom. In fact, books have been written uh, that you can go find, and they're enlightening books. Um, the Art of Power, The Art of Seduction. There's studies on how to manipulate in order to get what you want. And that has great appearance of wisdom, but in fact is foolish precisely because the Lord is watching and he's not going to put up with it. All right? So that's set up for us here as a warning. Don't be this way. Again, what would it be? To be simple as God is simple. Now, this also ties in with a part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he says, let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything more is from the evil one. So what is Jesus doing? Standing firmly in the wisdom tradition, he's saying, be simple. Not simple as in stupid, but simple as in having a unified heart, mind, and will, and letting your word be your word. This is how God is. So God is not tricky or deceitful or deceiving. In this way, he's completely different from the pantheon of pagan gods who are like, you know, you pray for a loaf of bread and they give you a scorpion. That's not how God is. He's simple. You ask for it, he gives it. He says it, he means it. And thus, wisdom is to take the form of this simplicity as opposed to the complexity um, that we see in those who deceive. Okay, maybe a little more on that next week. That's the end for today. God be with you.